0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Origins, a speaker series about food, its source, and how we eat. Available on heritageradionetwork.org.
0: I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Eating Matters is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. In 1933, FDR signed the Agricultural Adjustment Act into law. Part of the New Deal, this act reduced agricultural production by paying farmers not to plant on their land and kill off livestock. The goal was to reduce crop surplus and control supply, essentially increasing the value of crops. The act eventually evolved into what we commonly call the Farm Bill, which dictates our national agricultural policy. Many of the legacies of this bill are still around, and today on the show, we're going to dive into one of the most notorious aspects crop subsidies. As we reported last week, a team from the CDC and Emory University just released a new study evaluating the he- health impacts of our federal subsidy systems, or our federal subsidy program, finding a connection between people who ate the most food derived from subsidized crops were more, much more likely to develop diabetes, heart disease, or stroke than people who consumed the least. We're going to get into this issue today by discussing how and why these crop subsidies were first developed and what their subsequent repercussions have been, public health or otherwise. Later on the show, we'll be joined by Mike Winnick, co-founder of Our Harvest, an online full-service farmer's market that delivers farm-fresh produce to your door in New York City. But before we get into our crop discussion, or our discussion on crop subsidies, Taylor Lanzette, my associate producer, is in the studio with me to, to run through some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Hi, Jenna. Oh, that was a, that was a long intro. Yeah. Well, FDR. <laughs> I mean, he had a long time in what, office. <laughs> what great <laughs> podcast does not start with a conversation on FDR and uh, they're not doing it right. Agricultural if they do policies. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, so what's up?
1: Yeah. So last week, the USDA announced that they finalized the final four rules for school meals under the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act.
2: And for our listeners, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act was passed in 2010. <laughs> Correct. So
1: um, six years later, <laughs> the rules uh, were finalized, and uh, sort of the main takeaways are that the first one uh, made improvements to healthy snack options. Mm-hmm. The second one um, developed an impl- implementation of a local school wellness policies. Um, And the third, uh, community eligibility provisions, which essentially allow schools with high poverty rates to provide free breakfast and lunch to all students. And the last one um, pretty much are updates to the administrative review process, so how state agencies monitor federally funded programs and hold them accountable.
2: Can you tell us more about the community eligibility provision um, that has been a point of contention in in recent months?
1: Yeah, the the major change was really that they eliminated the household application process and streamlined meal counting and claiming procedures. So local education agencies can substantially reduce admin burden, pretty much all things relating to national school lunch and national school breakfast programs.
2: Okay, so ultimately, it's really good that these rules have been sub, uh, finalized, um, offering the final pieces in a puzzle of a healthier school food environment that the administration has championed. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a little, a little late, right? I mean, mm. I, I mean, there are certain provisions like the CEP that stand to be rolled back specifically in the next iteration of um, the bill, which is already one year, right, uh, delayed from being finalized. Yeah. So. so so there's that. <laughs> um, and speaking of rules
1: that have been finalized, on Monday, the EPA announced that it sent its recommended rules regarding pesticides and worker safety to the USDA for review. Um, and so this is right before it'll head to the White House for the final review. But the new standards would require certifications to be renewed every three years and improve some training requirements for those using certain pesticides.
2: Um, So this directly impacts pesticides that humans interact with in ag,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. So the proposal applies to chemicals that pose a high health risk, um, including atrazine and methyl bromide, which we've talked about on the show before. And, you know, Jenna, this has been 20 years in the making. Wow. And these improvements um, are in large part thanks to some of the research money in the 2008 Farm Bill that paved the way for pesticide research. That would study the increased risk of cancer and birth defects from exposed farm workers and their families.
2: Okay. So that's, that's it's positive. Really positive. Yeah. Just,
1: it's pretty shocking that it took this long. 20 law. years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TTB has been getting lots of attention at both conventions the past couple of weeks, um, and sort of, as we know, this Uh, This pact aims to deepen economic ties between 12 countries by slashing tariffs and fostering trade. And some suggest it would push countries together to have sort of a more singular, close relationship on economic policy and regulation, kind of like the EU.
2: Um, So... For as much discussion that this topic gets, especially recently, the link between the TPP and ag is not always super clear. Can you um, give us a little an overview of the connection?
1: Yeah, it's definitely not clear. (laughs) So uh, part of the 18,000 tariffs that TPP calls for, um, a lot of it will hopefully make it easier for American sort of ag producers to sell their crops by... uh, drastically slashing or getting rid of tariffs that uh, foreign countries would be paying on imported goods. Um, And, you know, it's one thing that makes it sort of another great sort of aspect of is that uh, foreign partners and member countries would work to develop food safety standards uh, in a way that was similar to how we develop ours with the USDA. So um, a lot of countries in this pact don't necessarily have the same sort of level of commitment to um worker safety and food safety that we have um and there's a reading about it you know the past couple weeks there are a couple items in particular that experts are saying to watch out for Mm -hmm. um, which are wine oranges beef and cheese because with lower um with lower without taxes on these items the prices of the goods will change and you know potentially producers can then become more competitive in the market
2: um You just described like three quarters of my diet by the way, <laughs> right <laughs> um
1: before we you know close out on talking about the conventions. I think it's also great uh, to note that the dNC released their platform on Monday. This one looking a little bit more in line with what many food advocates would like to see.
2: The uh, The platform. Um, I was excited to see a lot of things in this. I yeah. thought that um, it called for things like more funding for beginner farmers and expanded... Uh, farm worker protections, um, expansion of local markets and regional food systems, and providing a focused safety net on um, for family farm operations in need of assistance. So I thought this yeah, was really Yeah, this positive. is what
1: people have been wanting for years. So um, if they can really sort of embed this into the platform, it will be awesome. And it's definitely a major difference from what the RNC Unveiled last week Yeah,
2: to say <laughs> the least yeah.
1: um, And so last up uh, Our favorite, Walmart Is at it again uh, Last week they announced That they have started Piloting sales of ugly apples In 300 stores in Florida uh, The apples are branded I'm perfect And will be selling in Two and five pound bags
2: Um, This is really exciting because, of course, an estimated 40% of the food produced in this country is wasted. um, And imperfect-looking or blemished produce that doesn't get picked or that's thrown out as a result is a big contributor to the food waste problem.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what's even more exciting, I think, is that Walmart, you know, is a major player in grocery stores. And so if, uh, you know, if they begin to purchase this product, they have, you know, it's a total game changer because of how influential their purchasing power
2: is. Um, Indeed. Okay. Uh, That wraps up our news segment for today. Be sure to tweet uh, to us or direct message us at eatmattershrn if you would like us to include a particular policy update or have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. I now want to turn to our feature story today about crop subsidies. Joining me on the line to do so uh, are two guests. The first guest, Allison Aubrey, is a food and health correspondent for NPR News and a contributor to the PBS NewsHour. A James Beard award-winning journalist, she recently reported on the joint cdc emory study evaluating the connection between crop subsidies and public health. And Ricardo Ricardo Salvador is a senior scientist and director at the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, working with key stakeholders on transitioning our current food system into one that grows healthy foods while employing sustainably sustainable and socially equitable practices. Ricardo is the winner of uh, the James Beard Foundation Leadership Award in 2014 and was a guest on Eating Matters' very first episode. Ricardo. Allison, welcome to the show.
3: Hi there.
2: Hi. Um, Ricardo, do we have you on? Hi there. Um, Great. So in my intro, um, I, uh, Ricardo, skipped from the beginning of our federal ag policy in 1933 to recent day. Can you fill in some of the blanks on how American farm policy evolved to deal with surplus production um, and what laws are the core drivers of our ag policy today?
4: Yeah, sure. It's a lot of complicated history, but the basic outline is that the major problem of federal agricultural policy from the very beginning has been that farmers are very good at what they do, and they generate surplus. It's always been about how to manage the low prices that result from surplus, because then that means that the livelihood of farmers is undermined, rather than what many of us might suppose, which is to... um, Boost prices uh, when the prices are low. And so, you know, the low prices tend to be a consequence of the fact that we produce a lot. So, a lot of the different policy instruments that have been used have been uh, to experiment with either controlling supply, um, dealing with demand issues, or creating buffers such as a, uh, a grain reserve, a ever normal granary.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, There have been set aside acres for conservation, justification, and so on, but um, what we've ended up with is a system that until very recently basically just made direct payments to farmers and particularly farmers that produce a narrow set of crops that are referred to as commodity crops because they're undifferentiated. Uh, They're the raw products for our food system and primarily for the junk food system. So
2: So, so can you give us some examples of what those core commodity crops are?
4: Yeah, well, it's primarily the grain crops. It would be uh, corn, soy, and then there's industrial crops, such as cotton, for instance. Um, oil crops are another part of that, wheat or another crop of that. So it's primarily
2: the grain crops. Okay. And these are these are subsidized, you say, because they form the basis of our uh, the majority of the foods that are produced?
4: Well, they're definitely the base of the processed food processed. industry. So, uh, you know, any that you open up a package of something... Uh, it is highly processed corn, highly processed wheat, highly processed sugar, you know, and so these are programs that benefit from government support programs.
2: And you um, alluded to a big step change in our federal farm policy recently, um, which came, if I'm not mistaken, in 2014 with the new farm bill, um, and that was a switch from direct farm p- farm payment subsidies to crop insurance. Can you explain the difference um, between these two systems and what some of the implications are in the transition?
4: Yeah, this this will be uh, simplifying things quite a bit, but a <laughs> major feature of the system up until 2014 was a set of three interlocking methods of paying farmers, but the direct payments that you refer were fixed. They were constant, regardless of what happened in the market. And uh, the system that replaced that was devised because that type of direct payment system became very untenable politically, particularly for fiscal conservatives that didn't agree with that kind of market distortion, in other words, where it wasn't supply and demand that was setting prices and incentivizing what farmers were going to do. So it was very inconsistent with conservative politics. And so um, for a number of different additional reasons, the new system was put in place. And what the new system does is to provide a choice of two insurance programs that are far more sensitive to market conditions. Now, one interesting thing about this, though, is that there were a lot of assumptions that were made when this new system was devised. And uh, one of the assumptions was that you would need the program only to kick in when prices were low.
0: Mm -hmm. And...
4: uh, What has happened is that there's been tremendous production all around the world. It has flooded the market of these grain crops, all these commodity crops, so prices have been uh, very low recently. Mm -hmm. The reason why it was easy to make the reverse assumption was that this was all devised at a time of historical high prices in, in corn and soy in particular. And so the outcome of this is that the American taxpayer is now paying about twice actually more than twice annually, more than $11 billion a year than was expected, than was projected when these programs were put in place and and what the budget nominally includes for for this. So it's a very expensive program for us to be generating the ingredients for the junk food diet.
2: 11, 11 billion in taxpayers. 11 billion. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay, so Allison, I want to I wanna turn to you. This is like a, a perfect segue to um, the recent CDC Emory study um, that you wrote about evaluating the possible connection between crop subsidies and public health. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the study? Um, specifically, what questions did the researchers seek to answer and what did they find?
3: Sure. Well, they're really trying to, as you say, evaluate this association between consumption of these foods that we just mentioned, the um the uh, the green crops that were just mentioned, so the wheat, the corn, the soy, consumption of these top subsidized foods, and and the health of Americans. So what researchers did is they used data that had already been collected by a, hetero, a federal health survey known as NHANES to uh, analyze the daily diet of about 10,000 people. So for these 10,000 people, they were given a 24-hour recall where they would they were asked, you know, tell us everything you've eaten in the past day. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the researchers could estimate the consumption of subsidized food commodities as a percentage of their total calories. And when they looked at that, they found that the people who had the higher consumption of calories from these subsidized food commodities, so the wheat, the corn, the soy, Mm -hmm. that was associated with a greater probability of risk for obesity and risk for um, uh, prediabetes. So basically, they're saying the more of the foods you eat the higher your uh, cardiometabolic
2: risk is these foods being the processed foods that commodity crops often make up
3: right? Exactly right. People aren't eating corn, soybeans, and wheat from the field, as sort of pointed out. They are eating processed foods made with refined <laughs> wheat, soybean, and corn. Right. Um, so th- yeah, Americans have no problem, you know, adhering to the dietary guidelines <laughs> to, for for grains. It just happens to all be processed grains. But we have more of a problem with
2: <laughs> adhering to the recommendation to eat whole grains. Right. True. Very true. Um, so the connection between these two has has long been, you know, kind of discussed and and thought to be um, that just that a connection um bet- for bet- for uh, food and health advocates so i'm wondering alison what in your opinion was so significant about this particular study
3: I mean, I think it's significant because, you know, look, they found a way to analyze this. It may not have been the ideal or perfect methodology, but it's one that worked. And they got it published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Mm-hmm. And as researchers, when you get something published in a peer-reviewed journal, such as JAMA, people take notice. I mean, these are, you know, PhD, MD scientists publishing in a top-tier journal. They're making this connection. Um, so it began, it's, it's taken seriously, and it starts a conversation. Um, Which, you know, is probably a
2: good thing to do. Uh, Wasn't this the first time that this connection has been made in a study uh, of this size? Ricardo? Well, uh, oh, go ahead, Ricardo.
4: Yeah, uh, this has actually been suspected, this link. Uh, And uh, as we've just heard, this is coming from uh, serious researchers. And Mm -hmm. so not only do we have uh, medical researchers at Emory, you have the keepers of the nation's databases on our health status and uh, chronic disease status at the Centers for Disease Control. And so, uh, you know, these are people that uh, you can't accuse of having an agenda, but actually trying to legitimately answer the question, is there a link that you can trace between our consumption of junk food and these cardiometabolic diseases, so high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, hypertension, and so on. Uh, And, uh, you know, as we've heard already, uh, it is, It is a very difficult connection to make. And so you would need many more studies like this to corroborate the link, and there would be many more causal steps in the chain to pursue. But this is the way of science. You know, you start out with a question that you can define very specifically, do that study. That study then leads to additional questions, and you pursue those questions. And so uh, there has not been something that has been this comprehensive. There have been what I would consider to be weaker attempts to make the correlation. And that's all of this is, it's telling you two things are varying at the same time. It will take different studies to establish what, if any, connections actually exist. But you know, In, in that other that words, what is.
3: he's saying is like there's no there's, – this is not a paper that establishes causation, one mm-hmm. causing the other. This is – the whole methodology here, it's known as a cross-sectional study. So that means that researchers are capturing, you know, these two things at just one point in time. It's sort of a snapshot. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, it's a starting place, really. And, I mean, I think that's an important point. Uh, and it's just echoing what Ricardo just right.
2: explained. And in fact, Allison, you um, kind of pushed back uh, on the notion that farm subsidies are a meaningful driver of obesity and diet-related diseases, writing that there are other, a lot of other factors that, that influence our food, choice, um, food choices. Uh, can you give us a few examples of these factors and, and explain uh, your, your argument?
3: Sure. It's not really my argument. I'm basing this on (laughs) years of reporting I've done on this. I mean, over the years, I have noticed something. I've noticed that if you add sugar to something, it makes it sell. I once did a story about how Americans got hooked on yogurt and the Mm -hmm. whole history of the Dannon family. And yogurt was really popular in France. The Dannons moved to the U.S. Nobody liked it. They started adding sugar to it in the form of sweet jam and uh, a ha-ha. That was their magic formula. So (laughs) sugar is what hooked Americans on yogurt. It is a very similar story if you go back and look at the history of the first cornflakes, adding mm-hmm. sugar to them, turning frost, cor- turning cornflakes into frosted flakes was a very smart move by the cereal makers because America, we're hardwired to like this stuff. It's quick energy to the brain, right? We have right. all this vestigial biology that, you know, we, we want fast calories and we're primed to like this stuff. So I would say that we have this biological attraction to sugar and we're going to get it one way or the other. What we have, though, is an eating environment that is constantly pushing sugar, salt, fat on us. It's all around us. It's highly accessible. It's cheap. It's everywhere. And so, you know, does subsidizing things like corn that is used to produce, you know, high-fructose corn syrup, does that play into it? It does. But as I point out in, in my article, um, and this is not my opinion, I, I right. quote folks like Raj Patel, mm-hmm. who's a research professor at University of Texas, Austin, saying, look, th- this is a small part of a, of a big Big problem we have, and if you you know want to look at how to improve Americans' eating habits and how to address the obesity, you know, crisis, there are probably more direct causes and more direct solutions than 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 foreign policy. But foreign policy shouldn't be separate and apart either. So I think it's sort of a a perspective issue. You know, there's this whole spectrum of things that influence our eating behaviors, and if we want to put Food policy and agriculture policy into the mix. Let's start getting as much data as we can, which is what Ricardo and I are saying. This is the beginning of scientists mm-hmm. trying to look and measure this in a in a real solid way.
2: Absolutely, um, Ricardo. One of the potential solutions that I hear um, suggested is that to simply, you know, that we should be simply incentivizing the production of fruits and vegetables. To what extent is produce? Already grown um, in this country, and is this a viable solution or perhaps overly simplistic
4: yeah it, well it's in between there and <laughs> I, I'd like to I, i'll answer this question but let me back up just a little bit to make a point um, that it mostly just gilds the lily but I just want to underscore the very important point that Allison just made mm-hmm. and that is that there think of a metaphor of various bricks holding up a, a roof and uh, if you remove I think that the roof is this very unhealthy food environment that gives us very few choices. If you remove a brick here or there, it's not going to cause the roof to fall in. And so it's very difficult to find one causal factor that you can point to and say, aha, change this, and then everything else will follow.
5: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, At the same time, one point that I would like to make about farm subsidies that I believe really is critical is that they're misunderstood if you argue that what they do is affect the price of commodities directly, and therefore that's why we end up with more affordable junk food as opposed to vegetables. This, this relates to your actual question. I think it's really important to understand the thing that farm subsidies actually do. But they actually do because they're structured in a way that we're going to keep farmers whole, regardless of market conditions or natural disasters. It guarantees that there's going to be a consistent supply, and because farmers are very good, usually a below-market-cost supply, a surplus supply of the ingredients for the junk food diet. So what U.S. federal policy does is stabilize that supply. And that is important not only for the input suppliers that want to, you know, the people that are selling machinery and seeds and fertilizers. They need to know that there's a guaranteed market. So we indirectly guarantee them that there's that market, mm-hmm. and we guarantee the food processors that actually generate the junk food diet that they're going to have this consistent supply of usually below cost or at least inexpensive commodities that go into their system. That's what we're stabilizing. And so it's really important to distinguish the cost argument from the stabilization argument. Okay. But then the way that it relates to um, your question around fruits and vegetables uh, we currently have about 10 million acres in production of fruits and vegetables in the united states as allison has mentioned we underconsume against the usda dietary guidelines
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, which tell us that about three quarters of our diet needs to be plant-based half of that fruits and vegetables so uh, about a serving of fruits and vegetables under the recommendation is what each of us uh, are, are lacking and um if we ask the question uh, is the united states able to produce more of its fruits and vegetables so that we meet the demand if we all ate according to the USDA dietary guidelines, the answer is yes we can for those fruits and vegetables that we can produce domestically. So we've done that analysis.
2: You you at the Union of Concerned Concerned Scientists?
4: At the Union of Concerned Scientists. And what it means is that we would need to put 13 million acres into production of fruits and vegetables. Now for those that need context for that, Mm -hmm. we have about 400 250 to about 450 million acres that are arable potentially could be in cropland. Wow. And so it's a very small proportion of our total arable land. Right. Um, so, you know, with a small investment and incentives for more production, we could increase the supply of domestic fruits and vegetables, drive their price down so that it isn't more expensive to buy the healthy food, say tomatoes and greens, than it is to buy a package of Frito-Lay chips or Oreos. And that market distortion... Is something that we could affect. Where
0: does there's,
4: there's yeah
2: where, where um, so you said that there are currently only 10 million acres in production for fruits and vegetables um, but yet we need about 25 so where, where do the rest come from? Are they the imported? The
4: import uh, the majority of our fruits and vegetables that's kind of an irony you know right. farmers in the United States quite correctly have the conceit that they feed the world and we do export a lot of our commodity crops which as we just said are the ingredients for the junk food diet that's what when it comes to actual food, particularly healthy food—fruits, vegetables, nuts—we actually import more than fifty percent of that. And actually, for organic fruits and vegetables, it's actually countries like India, countries in the Caribbean, and Mexico that are feeding the United States.
2: <laughs> so that's that is quite the irony. Um, so, so it's uh, it's a little bit more complicated, but there could be major there could be major um, benefits to encouraging vegetable production, increased vegetable production here in the U.S.
4: Right, including not only all the health benefits that are our main concern here, but we would provide tremendous economic development opportunities and jobs for new farmers because these are the crops that can be grown at small scale quite successfully. We've uh, People are interested in that analysis. They can find it at the website of the Union Concerned Scientists. 90 million new jobs, about $11 million dollars of additional revenue that results from basically producing the supply that the USDA recommends for fruits and vegetables.
2: Wow, those are some pretty powerful statistics. Um, now, Ricardo, I wanna be cognizant of your time. Um, do you need to jump off? Right now?
4: Unfortunately, I do, but it's been great to be part of the conversation. Okay,
2: Um, Allison, thank you so much for joining us, Ricardo. Allison, if you could um, hold on, I would love to ask you one more question before we wrap uh up this conversation. Um, I want to circle back to what we were talking about, you know, circling back to the the, the health effects specifically. Um, Can you walk us through some of the um, alternative solutions um, for encouraging a healthier diet? Uh so we had sure. yeah that you that you that you discuss in your article sure
3: I mean I think something to point out is that we've already discussed the you know fifteen billion dollars or so spent every year um on crop subsidies, um so you and I, the taxpayer uh, help pay the premiums of farmers' uh, uh, crop insurance. And mm-hmm. so that costs, us we pointed out, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, $15 billion a year. And that is obviously a lot of money whenever we're talking billions of dollars. But right. what we spend on food stamps, which comes in the same farm bill, you know, allocation from Congress is much, 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 much higher than mm-hmm. that. And so when we want to look at how you influence what people eat, you can't overlook what's happening um, with the, with, the, with food stamps, other you know, known as SNAP food mm-hmm. stamps, is obviously. obviously. Obviously, the old term for it, and so I think what's really interesting here is that there have been a few pilot studies that look at, you know, how might we encourage SNAP recipients, so food stamp recipients, to um, buy a more healthful diet. And um, one thing is has looked at sort of incentivizing the purchase of um, farm market vegetables, or incentivizing the purchase of healthier foods in stores. And when you put those incentive programs into place, the evidence suggests that they that really works. That's Mm -hmm. what actually moves the needle on changing people's um, buying habits. And so I think when I mentioned that, you know, farm subsidies are A tiny part of the equation. I think what I was trying to get at is that there are obviously sort of like much more direct ways of influencing or nudging Mm -hmm. personal decision making. And what these pilot studies for SNAP recipients show, I think, are pretty compelling. And, um, you know, I think also in the private market, you know, health insurers have started trying this as well, where you incentivize people who you insure to buy healthier things at the grocery store. You keep track of their groceries. Or receipts, and when they do that, they get sort of cash back when they buy broccoli or these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. I mean, people really respond to the carrot. I mean, they kind of respond to the stick as well, but (laughs) I think the carrot is more politically palatable and it's a little bit more direct relationship because it's that retail price that's really driving consumption patterns. Um, You know, it doesn't have anything to do with the price we're paying to farmers or the price of commodities. I mean, you know, yeah. So, um, you know, I don't want to dismiss the idea that there's, you know, connection. Clearly, people are making this argument that subsidized crops might lead to over- overproduction, and then this overproduction leads to, you know, cheap processed foods. And I, I, you know, that's fine. That idea is out there. But I just want to be clear that I think that, you know, when you start looking about how to nudge people's eating habits, you can't ignore these kinds of things either.
2: Of course. So the idea is that we really need to. Um, it's like a both and, and a big part of that is working to increase consumer demand. Um, for these healthier fresh fruits and vegetables.
3: That's right. Yeah, that's the point I was making. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least that's what the you know studies suggest.
2: Absolutely. Um, and in fact, New York City has done a, a lot of that kind of work, especially with regard to um, uh, the SNAP program. I mean, they have the, we have here the, the health bucks program from the health department, which has been very, very successful in, um, providing coupons for SNAP recipients at our local farmers markets. Um, and also the, the fresh, uh, fruit and vegetable prescription program, which you also touch on in your article.
3: Yes, both of those. And those aren't just in New York City. They're being rolled out in other places. In fact, there was um, some money in this last farm bill to expand those programs, both double bucks and prescription fruits and veg. So these things are are really rolling out across the country. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what, you know, what the the analysis shows. I mean, Mm -hmm. pretty soon we're going to be able to, um, you know, to have a a clear sense of of how this changes people's, um,
2: you know, buying habits. Oh, I, I, absolutely! All right. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there for today. But I want to thank you so much, um, Allison, for for um, joining the call and taking the time to talk to us today. Sure, it was great to be on your <laughs> show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. You too. Okay, now we're going to go to a quick commercial break. Um, and when we come back, we will be joined by Mike Winnick, uh, who is a co-founder of the startup Our Harvest.
6: Today's program is brought to you by Origins, a speaker series. Origins aims to elevate the conversation about food, its origins, and what we are doing with food and food systems on this planet. The focus for this series is the food of the Mid Atlantic region, centered around Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay watershed. The series is held within the intimate confines of artifact coffee one of the restaurants owned by Spike and Amy Jerdy and their partner Corey Poloka, Spike Jerdy recently received the 2015 James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic, becoming the first chef from Baltimore to ever win an award from the foundation. Artifact is located at 1500 Union Avenue in Baltimore. Their restaurants also include Woodbury Kitchen and Parts and Labor, all of which are deeply and unwaveringly committed to the relationships they have with the growers, watermen, and producers of the Chesapeake region. We are here to create a community dialogue about local and responsible food systems, the economic impact of doing so, and how we grow, fish, cultivate, and work with local ingredients in our day-to-day lives. The panels feature growers and producers from the Chesapeake region. For more information and to listen to the series, visit heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Okay, now it is time for our segment on startups where we feature an innovative and exciting new food company at the end of each episode. Today I'm pleased to introduce Mike Winnick, co-founder of Our Harvest, a full service online farmers market serving New York City and Long Island. Mike, welcome to the show.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Absolutely. Um, So tell me about Our Harvest and how it works.
5: Yeah, so we are an online farmer's market. So you go to our website, ourharvest.com, and you mm-hmm. shop for a full selection of everything you basically get at a grocery store, from meat and seafood all the way down to produce, like typical kind of farmer's market fare, mm-hmm. straight from the source, from some of the highest quality providers you possibly could get. And we deliver it directly to your door if you live in Manhattan or parts of Brooklyn.
2: Wow. Um, do you have a, a delivery in Long Island as well, or is it a, a different model?
5: yeah so in the suburbs we have a slightly different model on Long Island the way the way it works is we set up centralized pickup locations in lots of different communities and so customers place their order and then actually pick up their their groceries at that set location
2: um, all right well that sounds that sounds convenient um, have you tell me a little bit about uh, yourself Mike have you always worked in food and how did you end up starting a food company
5: yeah great question so the answer is I've been very passionate about food since basically the day I was born. Me too. Uh, but I, I know. That's like always the best, right? Yeah. So, so it, it, it sort of drives the story here because I was an investment banker, actually. So I was on the dark side. I apologize to everyone <laughs> listening um, in advance. But I was an investment banker for over eight years. Wow. And, uh, but realized that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do with my career full time and always looked to want to do something with food, which was my passion. Right. And uh, my business partner and I spent a long time trying to figure out uh, exactly what might be the right path. And uh, it just so happened that one time my wife and I were shopping at Whole Foods and walked out, it was like $150 for groceries. We we're like, ah, it's yep. really high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for for us, like, okay, if it's really high. How come we always read about farms struggling in the need? And so my business partner and I, uh, Scott, we decided to uh, spend a long time calling, speaking to... Uh, various farmers and trying to learn more about what how the food system really worked and it turns out it was really, really inefficient. And so the whole point of our business is basically to go direct to the farm uh-huh. uh, from the farm, direct to the customer cut out all the middlemen and bring a, basically food at a more affordable price to people uh-huh. and make sure the farmer gets paid more so basically our system where the farmer wins and the consumer wins.
2: So um, it's uh, like very mutual, mutually beneficial throughout the entire value chain it sounds like you're saying.
5: That's yeah, exactly. I think that's the whole point of the business is to make sure that the farmer benefits. They're not getting, you know, in a typical retail setting, a farmer might be getting 10 to 15. And sometimes if they're lucky 20% of the retail price in our setting. They're getting much, much more of the retail price. Wow.
2: So do you consider yourself to be a mission driven business?
5: Oh, absolutely, a mission-driven business. The whole the whole point of our business model is to create a more virtuous uh, food system, and so we, we, like I said before, the farmer wins, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, the consumer wins because we're m- making the prices more you know more affordable for some of this local high-quality food, and then on on the, the third leg to our business is that the community benefits. So for every single order over twenty-five dollars, which is basically every single order we have, mm-hmm. we donate a meal to charity in your local neighborhood. So the whole idea here is that like if you shop with us you're not only helping the farmer and you're getting a better deal and better, by the way, much better quality food, Mm -hmm. but your community also is receiving the benefit of that meal donation. So everybody wins.
2: Um, So we recently saw Farmigo, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, and that has a similar model to your company, uh, go out of business pretty abruptly. Um, What, in your opinion, is it about your model that you think um, will make our harvest successful in this super competitive field, where margins are notoriously slim,
5: yeah, been, we were we were really surprised uh, and shocked, also, to see FarmU go and actually sort of saddened because, you know, from our perspective, the more people that shop and eat this way, the more people that are aware of this kind of uh, these kinds of programs, the better it is for everybody. So we were we were pretty pretty surprised by it. Yeah, uh, you know, from from our perspective, we spent uh, we've taken a, a very different approach than. Uh, some of our competitors, which is, you know, we started this business from scratch on our own with our own on our own dime. Right. And so um, our our view is that we know we know food ultimately is is a logistics business and a consumer business. Mm -hmm. We didn't really approach. We didn't come to it with just like let's let's apply some technology directly to a business. And all of a sudden it's going to be better. And so we spent a very long time working to improve the logistics and make the logistics profitable and sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then we've also spent a lot of time studying what consumers need and what consumers want and trying to craft a model that is very, very consumer and customer focused.
2: Um, what has your biggest challenge been since you first launched and how did you work to overcome it?
5: Yeah, I mean, for, for us, we, you know, there's always like little logistical things that you work on, what we've been honing and hopefully have been perfecting over the course of two years. I think yeah. for us, the biggest challenge honestly has been just getting the word out. Like for us, it's been uh, 100%, almost 100% word of mouth in terms of our customer growth and our customer base. And wow. so, you know, you ask your friends and people haven't heard about us. And we think that's, that's too bad because we're providing a really awesome, really valuable service through our website.
2: Yeah. Well, hopefully this show will help change that.
5: <laughs> exactly. That's what we're excited. So we're excited. to be here.
2: Spread the word. Um, what is your, I have to ask, what's your favorite product that you offer?
5: Honestly, changes by the season based on exactly what's peak and what's, you know, perfect right now what i've been loving right now are actually our hand dug clams from long island wow. so they're it, they're so they're so awesome like you like they're they're perfectly briny salty like taste like they just come out of the sea and the reason why they taste like they have just come out of the sea is because they've they just come out of the
0: sea
5: <laughs> uh, so it's, they're they're dug, they're dug fresh every single day they come in and we get them to our customers fresh every single day so it's really it's something that is just one of those unique things that from an online farmers market you might might not quite be expecting us to carry Yeah, our seafood is absolutely killer
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, that is, yes, I'm, it's very insp- inspiring me to go online and order um, right now. Okay, so t- just one final question before we wrap up. Um, where can we find your product, and um, can you remind us of the delivery areas in New York City?
5: Of course. So our product uh, is all available through ourharvest.com is our website, and you'll see all of our different pickup locations and areas. We deliver in Manhattan, uh, most of Manhattan, below 125th Street, a little bit above in some areas. Um, And then in Brooklyn, we are in Brooklyn Heights. Mm -hmm. We're in Dumbo, Williamsburg, and uh, Greenpoint. And then on Long Island, we have 10 or 15 pickup locations that you can uh, see just when you click on the Long Island section of our website.
2: All right. Awesome. We're going to have to leave it there for today. But, Mike, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about your company.
5: Yep, no problem. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Absolutely. Okay, for more information on the company and, more importantly, to place your order, go to OurHarvest.com. Um, I want to thank everybody so much, all of our guests, for joining us, Ricardo, Ricardo Salvador, Allison Aubrey, and Mike Winnick, and to our show sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from the one and only Taylor Lenzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienamy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and be sure to find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening.